Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Dave, principal at Mango Tech, and they discuss how to get good at delivering software, how CTOs can step back to let the CEO decide what problems need solving, and why you might want to reevaluate what KPIs you use to measure engineering productivity. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So I was hoping to get started to sort of like introduce you, you know, to the audience that you could give me a quick, like 30,000 foot backstory about you know, your career and what you're interested in. Yeah, I uh, I moved to California in the sort of mid to late 90s and had no idea that there was this dot-com boom thing happening. All I knew is I wanted to move to San Francisco and somebody said, hey, wow, you know some things about computers? And I was like, yeah, I, I've been writing code and getting paid for it for a while. And, and they're like, here's a job. <laughs> and that was... Uh, 1996. Uh, and so have sort of uh, been involved in uh, Silicon Valley and startups and big companies and, and medium companies and all that other stuff for more than 25 years at this point. Last couple of jobs uh, was an architect in infrastructure engineering at Salesforce, designed a lot of the way that Salesforce runs, also led the DevOps transformation there, uh, which sort of right around the time where DevOps was actually becoming a thing. So pretty soon after like AllSpa uh, and then the Flickr speech at, at, at Velocity and pretty soon after Patrick and uh, Andrew had their agile infrastructure thing uh, and then went on from there to run the global SRE group for the SolarWinds cloud companies. So like companies like Pingdom and Paper Trail and stuff like that. Uh, and then about three years ago or so, started my own business, working now primarily with primarily primarily with private equity uh, portfolio companies to help them maximize their growth using their technology organization uh, during the what they call the holding period, which which is the time that the private equity firms actually own the company, um, and it's. For me, it's just been awesome because I, I get to do all the like transformation kind of work, making engineers' lives better, which is kind of really why I got into this whole thing. Um, but I get to do that as a job. I don't do that just like, hey, I work for Joel's company and I have this job and this. Like, I get to do that with all kinds of different companies, so it's actually really fun. Yeah, it sounds super interesting. For a while, I was uh, working with some venture capital companies, and when they would make investments into them, uh, into some of their portfolio companies, uh, sometimes they had just scotch tape and bubble gum, you know, they, and they <laughs> knew it. And so they would they would uh, connect with me and say, "Hey, can you help them build an engineering org?" And so I got some experience doing that for a while. But then I learned about private equity, and a lot of people like will use them interchangeably, venture capital and private equity, but they're fairly different. Oh, yeah. And when you say holding period, that's probably the time that the private equity firm has has purchased uh, the company from the entrepreneur, typically like the founder or or another PE firm. And until what do they do with it after though? What what comes after the holding period? Are they? I don't know that. 
Yeah, so like the holding period would be broken into sort of three sections, you would call it. So the the first one you would think of as like planting. So that's when they're going to invest all the money. So we want to improve the engineering organization's output, which is where I come in. Uh, we want to, you know, fix up the financials. We want to do all that stuff happens like in the first. And this is not for every PE firm. Don't get me wrong. Like there's a certain style of PE firm that I like to work with. So that happens like maybe in the first year or two. And then the really the middle part of that period is just growth. That's what they want. They want growth. And it's it's funny, like we're on a CTO podcast, right? And I I talk to the CTOs and they're like, well, how do we save money? I'm like, that's not that's we're not that's not what we're doing here. And they're like, what? No, but my whole career, everyone's told me I have to save money on everything. I'm like, yeah, no, the saving money is good and it's important and all that other stuff. But like, we're going for growth. Like you have a product that people care about. That's why they're investing in you. It's it's not like, like you said, it's not like venture capital. Like no one's looking for product market fit. Like product market fit is established. You have a valuable product and somebody wants you to grow the crap out of it. So that's sort of where, you know, that's why I'm in sort of in the planting phase to make sure that the growth stuff happens. Uh, and then, you know, there's the harvesting, which is basically exactly like you said, like you sell to another PE firm, you go public, you do whatever the exits are, where the, you know, the firm gets the benefits of what they, what they invested. And so, yeah, does that mean the things I typically work with are tend to be really messy? Yes. Is that what makes it fun? Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the best part. Like I, I do work with, you know, startups and VC a little bit, not, not very often, but you know, you got a 60 person team and like two people are having trouble figuring out how to get something done. You're like, Hey, you should try talking to them about it. <laughs> and then like, oh, yeah. Things get resolved. But when you have like a thousand engineers, it gets a little bit more complicated. So, um, which again, I think it's so fun. I love getting involved with that stuff. Yeah. I've, I've just been learning about it primarily the, the past five years. I kept seeing everybody do really well and with money. And so I said, I need to surround myself with some really smart money people. Mm. I had built a financial software app and then I met a couple investors from like Wharton you know, business school yeah. and they were older and they were looking to, you know, they needed my help with some technology. And so I said, Hey, can I hang out with you guys and like, you know, spend time with you and, and learn about how this stuff works so I could develop some sort of mental picture. And what I got from the whole experience was there's various levels of capital like in the world. And so there's a whole group of people who are just making seed investments. There's a whole group of people who are just making growth investments, wanting the PE exit or the public exit. Then there's the, the lower level PE that's like trying to buy things that are $5 million, maybe doing M&A and then packaging it up for 25 and then selling it up to this other group, different capital level up there. And they only deal in like $50 million plus stuff. And I just was like, whoa, <laughs> like it was so mind blowing because you don't know that. Like no one teaches you that in school and unless, you know, you don't need to know that as a CTO, but to understand how that, that, that field is laid out is crazy. Yeah. I, I kind of went on the exact same journey as you. So I, I can definitely relate to it. Uh, 
sometimes I'm just like, hey, you just learned what capitalism is. Like, <laughs> that's really fascinating because, you know, we're engineers, right? Like, like you said, nobody ever taught us that. I think the, the important thing or the good thing or whatever is that the CTOs who understand that are the ones who are really going to do well. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm in some discussion groups with, with engineers and, and stuff like that. And, and they're like, I can't, you know, there's, you probably had this already on your show, but uh, there's a whole discussion about what technical debt is. And then people get confused because when you go to a business person and you say, there's all this debt, they're like, great, let's package it up and sell it. <laughs> and they're like, no. and you're like, no, no, but no, you know, and then it's like, so, but they think about things in a different way. And so they're like, one of the things we talk about in engineering sometimes is if you want to get something accomplished, bring a finance person with you, bring someone from the CFO's office, because they're talking that language that the business people understand. And you go and say, technical debt, their mind goes immediately somewhere that's not even close to what you intended. Uh, and so it, I think it's really important. Um, you know, one of the things I love the most about the DevOps movement uh, is that it really helps to tie the engineering that we do to business outcomes. And I think that's sort of exactly what a CTO is in a lot of respects, right? They're, they're representing what engineering is to the business because it's about business outcomes. And so um, I always tell my clients, like, you know, they're like, well, what should we be working on next? I'm like, work on what's the most important thing for the business. And they're like, huh? And I'm like, I don't know anyone who's ever got fired for spending all their time working on the things that are most important to the business. So this is like perfect job security. Just keep working on the things that are most important to the business. And you know, when I was young in my career, I was like, oh, bigger hardware. Because, you know, I was a Sun Solaris administrator. And I got super excited about, oh, bigger, bigger E450s, E10Ks. You know, they had even bigger numbers. But, like, it's not why we're at work. Like, we're not at work to play with bigger hardware. We're at work to achieve business outcomes. And I, I think that the, the DevOps movement and the state of DevOps reports and the Accelerate book and all that stuff really is starting to reinforce that with people that that's why we're here. We're here to solve customer problems. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've seen people um, get that advice of, uh, you know, work on the hardest problem. And then what they do is they'll go try to figure out what the hardest problem is by their own reasoning. And, and I'm always like, Nope, that's what your CEO is for. Like <laughs> go to your CEO and ask them what's what, cause the most important problem isn't like the subjective thing you're trying to seek out and understand. It is whatever the leadership of the company is has determined is the most important item. So like, just ask, you know? Yeah. I, I often tell the story of, uh, of this guy back in 2008, who was a network administrator for the city of San Francisco. And they told him to give the Cisco enable password which for people who are of that generation, I guess, uh, which is the administrator password for the network gear to these consultants. And he was like, no. And they were like, what? And he's like, no, I, I won't give it to them. And you're like, what? Uh, and they eventually wound up throwing this guy in jail, which is like crazy, right? To begin with. Um, but so Gavin Newsom, who's now the governor of California, was the mayor of San Francisco at the time, had to go negotiate with this guy to give up the enable password so he could get out of jail. 
Um, and, and to me, it's like the most DevOps story ever. It's like this guy thought that the reason that he goes to work is to work on technical challenges, not understanding that the reason that you go to work is to serve the people of the city of San Francisco in the best way possible. And it, to your point, it's the CEO or the mayor or whoever who's figuring that out. Like it's not, you, you have a window into the technical part of it, which is super cool. Like, don't get me wrong, but like, that's not how, you know, that's not how we figure out what we're trying to get done overall. So uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yes. Now are you, when you're going in and working with these companies, are you helping them like with all things, like, are you helping them make this transition of understanding, you know, like for what you said earlier about saving money, most people are like, here's my budget. I got to cut the budget, got to shave the budget. Like they just have done that their whole lives and their personal finances, they've done that. And they do that at work to some degree. So it's just this drilled in muscle memory thing. The big change for me happened when I started listening to people like uh, the Robert Kiyosaki or um, the Grant Cardone's and, or, or just like some of the billionaires like Warren Buffett or Elon Musk. And they gave me this perspective that just like cleared everything out. And it was just this concept of capital allocation. It's like, are like the people that have the biggest companies, they're the best at capital al- allocation. And so when I started to run my business from that perspective, everything changed. I wasn't worried about, okay, you know, this one subscription that's 50 bucks a month. I'm not spending, you know, whatever, trying to figure that out. I'm just constantly focused on where does the capital that we have need to go. Um, and, and often it's to growing sales and then making the product better. I mean, that for me, that's what it is. It's like, let's get more sales and let's make the product better. And whenever I'm confused, I just go to one of those things. Yeah. So I really only work with engineering, uh, parts of the organization. I do work with like the CIOs or the CEOs, certainly. But um, for me, you know, it's I wrote an article for uh, CIO.com called Get Good at Delivering Software. And really, it's got a lot of those elements from like um, the lean startup and, and things like that, which is basically like, hey, especially for the kind of companies I work with, you can de- you deploy four times a year, right? That means you can run four experiments a year as to like what your customers want, stuff like that. Joel's company deploys every day. That means at a minimum, probably 20 20 experiments a month. You're deploying four times a year. Joel's deploying 20 times a month. He can run 20 experiments. You can run four. Who's going to win that one? And really, you know, it's not fair. It's asymmetric warfare. Like your Joel's company is going to completely destroy them because you can do all kinds of fancy things. So what I work with these companies on is getting good at delivering software. And the great thing about like things like Accelerate and 2019 State DevOps Report was they determined that companies that are high performers are twice as likely to meet or exceed their organization's performance goals. So those are things like, you know, customer satisfaction or revenue or whatever. And so um, what I'm working with these companies on is a lot of the stuff from, from those reports, but basically this idea of if you can deliver like with speed and quality consistently, that's where you're going to get your growth. Like, And that's what the PE firms want is they want growth. And you're going to get that growth because you're literally just going to outcompete everybody else in the marketplace. So how do you do that? How, how do you deliver software better? 
Um, so, uh, you know, lots of different things that, that come into it. Um, you know, sort of the microcosm of, of all that is uh, we do uh, an assessment, which we don't do for everybody, but we do it for a lot of both portfolio companies and just non-portfolio companies as well. But it's based on the state of DevOps report, which I, I know you you know about, um, but there's the four KPIs in the state of DevOps report, which are deployment frequency, lead time for changes, change failure rate, and time to recover. And they call it mean time to recover. And if you and I want to go off on a fun tangent, we can talk about that. But uh but basically, like, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that'll measure those things or whatever. But when I created the assessment during lockdown, because, you know, needed something fun to do, uh, you know, what I wanted to set out to do was really create something that talked about people's capabilities to deliver things. And I didn't really get all that worried about the actual numbers because you can deploy 500 times a day. Is that more, is that way better than deploying 300 times a day? Like it, it's just kind of meaningless at that point. Right. And so there's this law called Goodhart's law, which is when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to become a good measure. Um, I didn't really like measuring like deployment frequency or any of that stuff. What I want is people to get good at those things. And so, uh, you know, I've checked out a whole bunch of the modern CTO podcasts and you've had people come on and talk about uh, resilience engineering. You've had people come on and talk about feature flagging, like all these kinds of things. And those are things that are actually really important to being a high performer. So um, we ask people, you know, questions about like what happens, you know, from when they check in code until it's in production. We ask about the same things for infrastructure. We ask about incident response. Uh, and then we talk to people about like, hey, you know what? If you, let's use your the example of feature flags. Uh, you know, if you were to implement feature flagging, that would really help with your four Dora metrics, whatever. Not that I really care what that number is, but we already know that those metrics or those those measures are what's indicative of a high performing engineering culture, and because like let's say I was to focus on just lead time for changes and I knocked it out of the park and everything else was garbage, that's not a that's not a good engineering culture. So those things are just a proxy for what's a good culture, and we try to help people get there. And uh, yeah, and feature flags. You know, I I, I wound up doing a uh, we were was doing these the- all last year. Was that the launch darkly episode? Yeah, I heard that. yeah, that was really interesting. But like at the we did them all last year, so I did uh, some analysis like at the end of the year to see like what we'd learned. And it turns out that in the highest performers and in the lowest performers, we would tell people about feature flags because they are that important, right? So if I can, if I'm using feature flags, I can deploy more frequently because I can turn it off when I deploy, you know, and then I can dial it up to 1% where my lead time for changes is going to go down because it's just less risky to put things out there. And, you know, if I have a failure, I can recover faster because um, you probably know, like Etsy used to deploy everything under a feature flag so that if like an SRE got woken up in the middle of the night, they could just turn the thing off. Boom. Problem goes away, you know? And so, um, so it turns out that that's like a huge, <laughs> huge thing. Uh, and that factors into a lot of these different um, measures. Whereas, you know, other things that we might recommend, like, 
you know, having really good documentation about your incident response procedure, it's not going to affect your deployment frequency, or your lead time quite as much as it will certainly like your change failure rate or your time to recover or things like that. Um, at, like at the CTO summit or something, the, where did, where did you give that talk at? Yeah, it was a private equity firm CTO summit. It turns out that a lot of these firms have these types of things where they want to get people in their portfolio together, both to talk to each other and learn from each other, but also to um, bring in other people that can help them, you know, take a step forward, whether that's cybersecurity or whatever, all kinds of different topics. So when you give that talk, what do you, there's so many things to focus on. Everybody has their own unique context and issues that they're bringing in. So they're all seeing it slightly different. How do you structure that talk? What's, what's like the three or four takeaways I would get from listening to that talk? Uh, you know, for me, it was like for that particular talk, I was basically saying, you know, focus on creating the environment that enables the good scores on those four KPIs. Like we talked about deployment frequency, lead time for changes, change failure rate, and time to recover. Um, and don't obsess about the actual number itself. Like that's not really the important thing because, you know, people will go off and uh, I think Deming had a quote, something to the effect of like, give a man a, a, a target and he will uh, achieve that target even if it drives the company out of business. <laughs> uh, and so like, you don't want to focus so much on the actual number, but you, you want to focus on the capabilities. And, uh, for them, I, you know, I went over like, you know, what the, the things that people did best were, you know, over the last year and what are the things that people struggle with the most, uh, and, you know, and why, like not why did they struggle so much, but like, why are these things important? And so like, for example, like the thing that everybody did the best on was uh, storing their software in a revision control system. And <laughs> that sounds, you know, pretty basic, yeah. right? And you would hope that everybody would do well on that. And they did, which is good, you know, because, you know, a few years ago, people had stuff on their desktop and they were like tarring it up and SCPing it somewhere. And, you know, that... We don't want to deploy software like that. And the second thing that people did best on was uh, building code into artifacts automatically, like when you commit to code. And it sounds funny to say it out loud, but like you're talking about a piece of software that started out in 2007 and is this big, gigantic monolith. You know, some of those things aren't actually all that easy to do, like to make to, to build all that stuff. And that's that's what we call modern software development. Um, but the reason that those things are are good, right, is because we can deliver software quickly and we can deliver software with high quality. Um, but those things are enabling that kind of thing, right? If I can't check into revision control, then I can't get Joel to do a code review for me. So that's going to automatically reduce the quality of my code. And I can't build the artifacts. That means I can't test things. And I, I mean, there's all kinds of, of knock-on effects. And so for this talk, I talked about what the top hits were, where the top misses were. Uh, and then we went through a couple of examples of companies that we assessed over the last year, sort of what the scores were that they got and, you know, what are the things that they did well and what are the things they didn't do well? And I, and I was joking with the um, CTOs. I'm like, hey, you're all consultants now. 
because I was giving them like sort of like, hey, this was an add-on that we were doing onto a bigger company. They were a small startup. They were very agile. They were in, you know, this space. They had these characteristics. So, you know, it gave people to your point, like everyone's bringing their own sort of their own biases to it, I guess, or their own background. It gave them a little background, a little context on, on what they were looking at. And then they could start thinking like, yeah, yeah, we kind of have that problem too, you know, and, and, and just really try to get them to understand because, you know, it's not, it's not a fault of anybody. It's just CTOs generally have a really great background in software development, not as strong a background in software delivery, especially if, you know, they're the right age, like, they, they were, grew up in a time where everyone threw the software over the, what Andrew Schaefer calls the wall of confusion. Like, I write it, you run it. And that's sort of, they never got to sit in that, those environments and really see how it behaves and, and all the other stuff. So I, I'm trying to sort of help them understand like, hey, this is kind of what it looks like when we're, we're delivering quickly. And uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of startups just get this off the bat because they're born in the cloud. Hey, I'm born in the cloud. I got all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. But not, not every company is like that. I didn't understand artifacts. I haven't heard that before. Just like, you know, any kind of thing that's shippable. So like a Docker container would be an artifact. Oh, right? anything that's shippable? You know, and I like a, any, any package. Uh, like, you know, we used to talk about like when we de- deployed jar files with Java, we're like, hey, should we put that in a Docker container? We're like, well, it's already in a container. And so like putting it in Docker is like, yeah, there's a lot of advantages in terms of the ecosystem, but there's also a pretty good ecosystem already around Java. Like it's not a brand new whiz bang, whatever. So, you know, over the years when you've been doing this as long as I have, like there's Debian files and RPMs and chocolatey things for Windows. And now there's containers and then there's jar files. And like, I don't really care what the actual thing is that you're shipping, but like, you know, you want to ship, you want to ship an artifact in whatever form that artifact happens to take, because that's something that you can transport around and, and use. Uh, and just makes things a heck of a lot faster. I, I was telling people, I used to write a lot of Puppet back in the day. And uh, one of the things I loved about Puppet is it made you do things the right way, which is sort of what I'm trying to encourage people to kind of do now. But it wouldn't, like you could do the thing that we all used to do back then, which was dot slash configure, make, make install, right? That's how you deploy software. You compile it, you install it. And like, Puppet was like, yeah, if you want to do this, go ahead, but it's going to be hard. <laughs> and they were like, instead, you know, create an RPM repository, a YUM repository for RPMs or create a Debian app repository, whatever, and just deploy a package out of there. And it was just so easy when you followed like the, the correct patterns. And I loved that it was opinionated in a way that made you do really good engineering. So like, you know, an artifact for me is just any kind of thing that I can ship that's not, you know, here's the source code. I'm going to compile it like this. You know, th- those days are long gone. Hopefully, <laughs> I think Hopefully. there's people who still do that and, the, you know, they, they should call me, I guess. I've talked to companies that all they do is maintain massive facilities of these like old uh, mainframe type things. 
Yeah, that's. I, there's some really interesting stuff up about out there about like how to do DevOps on mainframes, which I have to admit is not something I would like to jump into. But uh, but yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. I mean, I, I think it's you know the classic one more for the DevOps movement is uh, Gary Groover's um, HP Jet Direct cards, where they were actually doing DevOps type, you know continuous delivery kinds of things on these hardware cards and people are just like what <laughs> but yeah mainframes probably be a whole other level of, of of interesting that i may not want to get involved in what other struggles did you see like what were the top two or three struggles that you saw from your most recent talk uh, I mean, you, some of the stuff is things that you would expect, right? Um, deployment, like being deployed, being done like on demand by developers without a ton of intermediate like steps or whatever. People who are having trouble, like they have this whole thing where like it goes to this and then the QA department gets it and then they run off and do a bunch of manual testing and then they bless it or whatever. And then it goes to a change advisory board and you have to write all this documentation for the change advisory board for them to allow you to release it in a product. You know, and it's like, look, that that's finished. <laughs> like we're not doing that. And uh, you know, we can dig into a lot of that, but like, you know, it's, what's the one of the things I learned the most at, at Salesforce was the difference between QA and QE and how quality engineering is actually a real discipline. That's not any of the stuff that we've all thought of as QA over the years, which is, you know, their big focus is on automating this stuff. And, and, and they cover that in, you know, Humble and Farley's continuous delivery book about automating your tests and, and all that stuff. And then the change advisory boards, you know, one of my favorite things of the past few years was uh, Dr. Nicole Fosgren, who is like the lead author on the Accelerate book, stood up at a DevOps Enterprise Summit and said, change advisory boards are worthless. <laughs> everybody in the audience was like, ah, you know, and, uh, but, you know, and this is something that when we do assessments and we see people that have change advisory boards, you're like, you gotta, you gotta get rid of that. Because, you know, I've been that guy. I've gone to the change advisory board and, and this is, you know, I'm going to pick something that's super old so that nobody feels targeted. Uh, you know, I was like, we want to deploy this thing on the FTP servers or in six countries around the world. And the change advisory board's like, well, you know, we're, we're going to review this. And I'm like, so um, who here knows how the FTP protocol works? Silence. So you don't even know what I'm talking about, yet you're going to approve or deny what I'm doing, and that's going to make it safer. Like, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Like it's, it kind of makes sense. That's how a lot of things are with humans. Like sometimes you just walk into these processes and you're like scratch your head, like what's going on? Why? <laughs> yeah. So the change advisory boards turns out they don't add any safety or value whatsoever. All they do is slow things down because. All the things that you want to test, you don't want to rely on some human anyways. Like, you, you know, you want uh, you want code, you want all kinds of other stuff because humans are really fallible, which is, you know, that's what the computers are there for is to help us along and make us really awesome, uh, not to get rid of us or, or any of the other things. So, um, you know, the easy deployment stuff is things that people struggle with. 
people uh, understanding even the deployment process is something that people struggle with. Yeah, can I can I stop so many you there? Different moving parts. I've got I got a question for you. I don't want to get too far away from it right because on. I think there's a lot of people that are that are curious about this. Cool. So you you had described this workflow of going to the you know Q, QA department, having them do their things, then going over to this cap uh, change advisory board and like this, and you're like, oh, that's like you know the archaic way of doing it. But right. what is what is the modern way to do it? Uh, you want to have automated tests throughout. That's how you make things safe, you know, and and. So this isn't even so for, depending on what you want to call modern, you know, this was in continuous delivery by Jazz and Dave, uh, which is, you know, so I have this the the classic example I give is I went to a executive vice president at Salesforce and I was like, hey man, we want to build this uh, you know testing environment, uh, testing pipeline, really better way of saying it, uh, for being able to deploy this stuff out to production, and he was like, great, how much does it cost? A reasonable question, right? And I said, "Well, how confident do you want to be in in what we're releasing?" And like, that's the thing that Jazz and and Dave talk about is like the more testing we do, the more confidence we can we'll have in what we release. And so, if I run like three unit tests and then I'm done and it goes out, probably gonna have a pretty low degree of confidence in the code that I wrote. It's not gonna break something. But I, if I actually have really pretty good unit test coverage, you know, people talk like 80%, things like that. I have my integration tests. I'm, you know, I'm running my sonar cube stuff for security. I'm doing all this other stuff. When that thing gets out to production, I have a, and I have regression tests, blah, blah, blah. I have a pretty good feeling of confidence of the thing that I deployed. And so, you know, it's a balance, like, that's the that's the the big joke about engineering, right? It's not just all ones and zeros. Like it's an art. How much testing do we do? When do we feel the most confident? If we do too much testing, we slow the business down. If we don't do enough testing, then our customers get super angry. Whatever. So, you know, it has to be a balance. But like you really, you know, in this environment, certainly what you you described as modern, like speed kills. Like speed is the name of the game. Like being able to run all those experiments, outcompete your competitors, that's a big deal. And so um, you want the code, you want the computers to make you kind of a rock star in that regard. Like you want them to, the computers to run the test, to do all those things. And it doesn't mean there's not a place for exploratory testing for like QA or whatever. It's just that can't, hold up the process like that's an important thing that can get done but it's not it doesn't block the critical path does that make sense oh yeah yeah and you know i get to talk to people you know off the show and i would say just very little data just completely subjective my feeling is that at least half the people uh, at least half the companies out there they'll have like some concept of testing but they, they, it won't like be in the culture, you know, like maybe some of their better developers test and then some don't really test as much. And then, you know, I always, my, my, my ears always perk up when I hear things like, oh yeah, but we can't really test that because throughout my entire growth of like learning how to test, I was like, you can't test it. And I figured out how to test it. And then I figured out how to test it. And I just kept going all the way up and then learning new tools and, and new ways of like, how do you create more firm you know, test versus more brittle tests and like, how do you, how do you attach it? And all of these different things about, like you said, it's like stylistic, what type of test to use where and when. And, and, and then I, I realized that like, you know, if you couple that with feature flags, 
um, QA gets like real small, real fast, like human QA. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the quality engineers that I worked with at Salesforce just blew my mind sometimes. I was like, so this is what I'm trying to do. And they're like, yeah, what about if we did this instead? I'm like, oh my God, that totally solves the problem. And they're like, yeah, this is kind of what I do for a living. I'm like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, so yes, I, I totally agree with you. And, uh, you know, it does, it shrinks down that human side of it, but it doesn't make it any less valuable. It's still tremendously valuable, especially for software delivery, you know, for shipping things out quickly. Um, some of the other things that people struggle with is stuff that you've also talked about on your show before, which is resilience engineering. You know, what happens when something fails? Like, do we even know? Like, who, you know, you, what you don't want is the, hey, it's 3 a.m. The only person who knows about this is Joel. Wake Joel up. You know, that's that's not a great place to be. Like, it, well, it turns out that Joel's in Fiji relaxing on a beach. Well, now we're in trouble, you know, like you, that's not, it's not something that's desirable. So, you know, we go as far in the assessment as asking things about like chaos engineering and, and stuff like that, because, you know, turns out that thing's huge. I, what I really try to do is help people understand why that's huge. Right. And it's the reason that Netflix, you know, did the chaos monkey and all the fun things that we love to hear about, it's not because they were like, hey, look, we're so awesome at delivering software. We're just going to turn things off. It was that they understood, and which most people probably are going to understand in about 30 seconds, is when I deploy software in January, you know, some microservice that I have, and I deploy that same thing in August, it's not really the same software anymore, right? I've been deploying for months. And that's been changing the characteristics of that software. It changes how it behaves. It changes the things that it can do. It can, it just, things are constantly changing. And the only way to really stay on top of that is the chaos monkey kind of stuff. Whereas like, we want to have high confidence that we actually understand how this software works. And like, if it loses connection to the database, that it's going to do the same thing that it was always supposed to do. And it doesn't do something different. And like, you could stop the release every single time and do all kinds of tests and not saying you shouldn't do some of those things, but like there's a lot of interactions between all these stuff in these complex distributed systems. And I've worked on a lot of really big complex distributed systems that you just can't reason about. You can't just sit back and like, look at the entire system and be like, Oh, I understand everything. Like, it doesn't work that way. And so like, that's why they're doing these chaos experiments is because, you know, you want to break the software when everybody's awake and understands what's going on. You don't want to break software at three o'clock in the morning. And then everyone's reaching for their jolt colas to try to figure out what the heck is going on. <laughs> that's back in the nineties. Does jolt still exist? <laughs> Surge, surge and jolt. Yeah. <laughs> Monster energy drink. Um, some of my favorite uh, reliability episodes that you just started talking, they started, I started remembering. Yeah. Um, we have one with Gremlin. It was this guy who had like left Amazon. I think he was on the reliability engineering team for, for Amazon's website. And then he said that somebody would run around and just randomly yank out cords and they call it like a gremlin or whatnot right. and just oh, to see if it would cool. still work. Yeah. They'd run around the server room and just yank stuff out and be like, Oh, does it work? Does it still work? And so he took all his learnings and then they built this gremlin thing. And 
I, I believe this was like a year or two ago when I talked to him, but the thing that caught my interest about it was when you have this, um, like issue, right? It, mm-hmm. it does, I think like a postmortem on it and then you can like write code against it. And then it goes into this library of like, like Grimman will pick up on, you know, the mm-hmm. thing, the, the incident, and then you can, uh, track that. It wasn't like full incident tracking, I don't think, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It was worth looking into. And then I had a guy, it was, he was a cool guy. So it was a good episode. And then, <laughs> uh, Adam Barat, I think, I don't know how to say his last name, but he's got this Apex Ridge like reliability company. He does like hardware, industrial stuff, but right. he also does software and he's crazy and he turned like he put like he turned his Porsche into like a, a something that could like pull a sailboat. It was right. it was crazy. So, uh <laughs> yeah, those are two of the reliability um episodes that I really like. Yeah, and you know, it turns out that's a big part of being good at delivering software is, is caring about that stuff. You know, they, uh, one of the things I talked about during that talk was, um, you know, incidents are socio-technical constructs. You can define an incident as whatever you want. And I tell CTOs, if you want to get better nines, just change your definition of an incident. You can go from 97% reliability to 95 nines. No problem. Just change your definition of an incident. But you know, the kind of the jokey part is that really like what they, what we've learned is like airlines that have more incidents are actually safer than airlines that have less, which makes no sense when you say it out loud, but it's because the airlines that have more incidents have a lower definition of what is an incident because they want to learn from those incidents and they want to get better and they want to be safer and stuff like that. The airlines that only care about like what the, you know, the public will see and the number and it's all for vanity and whatever, they don't take security seriously. And so they're going to have more incidents. They're going to have a harder time recovering or whatever. And I don't think it's any different in the software industry. It's like, if, uh, if people aren't interested in that and all, it's all about features, features, features. Yeah. Well, you're going to have longer incidents. You're going to have things where you know, what I always tell people is the golden rule of SaaS. Don't, don't lose customer data. You're going to lose customer data when you don't take this stuff seriously. So there's a lot of things that go into getting good at delivering software, which is why I wrote that article for CR.com. Um, and it's not just about, you know, let's argue about this JavaScript framework. Like that's not all there is to delivering good software. At the beginning of your career, when you're new, it is. Cause that's all I, you really see. You get so excited about it and your whole life is trying to just figure out how this thing is working. That is true. And also, yeah. you know, this, that's why people sometimes get wrapped up in these silly things like lines of code. How come you didn't write enough lines of code this week? It's like, what is that a proxy for? Like that has nothing to do with value. It has nothing to do with quality. It has nothing. And Camille Fournier, uh, who wrote A Manager's Path, a, this great book, whatever, wrote a great blog post last last summer where she it's something to the effect of like, you know, a list of things that you need to be able to do as a senior engineer that, that's not writing code. And it's like how to convince other people that your idea is a good one, how to mentor a junior engineer, how to write good technical documentation. I mean, you even said it yourself like a couple of minutes ago, like, What's a good test? Where is that? Where is it appropriate to put that test? Like all those, none of that is writing code yet. Like you and I both know, because we've been doing this for a while, like 
those are way the most important parts of, of, of delivering software. It's not how I, I can write code. Yeah. Okay, fine. But that's like literally the easiest part. But to your point, like early in your career, you're like, look how good I am. I'm writing code. And it's like, yeah, after four or five years, like the fact that you can write code and write pretty good code, we all kind of consider that something that should, if you haven't, can't do that after four or five years, there's a big problem because you're never going to be super effective in your career. And like, yeah, that's a great skill. But like the hard part is all of the things that are hard to measure and all the other fun kind of fun stuff. Yeah, it was, um, I guess, sobering for me to realize like one day I just had this epiphany that, oh, wow, writing the code is is turning the, the wrench. Like, because my brother-in-law <laughs> has a motorcycle shop and I was there and I was like, oh, it's like your entry. It's your entry. It's like, here's the, the low level job that you can do to get your foot in the door. And, right. um, you know, on that side of the organization, but there are some people who like turn it into an art and just take it like way farther. Yeah. You know, there are those few. So like, I have a lot of respect for those people. And, um, th- I don't know. I just, I tend to have, uh, the most respect for people that just really care and try and push things forward regardless of the topic, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, and I have the most respect for the people like that who can make everybody else around them even better. Oh yeah. So like there was a guy on one of my teams who, whenever I wrote code, I was like, I want you to do my code review (laughs) because I knew every time I was going to learn something really, really valuable because he could do what you're talking about. He could just sit there and write some amazing stuff but he also made everybody else around him better all the time. And like, you, I mean, how do you, how do you out compete a team where that, where that's happening? Like, it's just like, that's a real 10 X engineer. You mentioned a couple of times this book accelerate. I have not read this book. Can you describe like what it is? Uh, accelerate is um, the book. That's the science behind the 2019 state of DevOps report. So um, door research was, back in the day uh, was uh, Jez Humble, Nicole Fosgren, and uh, Gene Kim, uh, and some other assorted folks. And so, you know, when Nicole came in to get involved with that uh, survey, she really brought uh, her uh, PhD statistics, environmental design, all that kind of background uh, to the actual study, we'll call it. And so when they were able to publish these findings, like we said, which is why I based my assessment on it, high, you know, highest performers are twice as likely to meet or exceed their organization's performance goals. Um, she, there was real math behind it. And so the Accelerate book talks about a lot of the learnings of the report, but like the back half of the book is like, here's the experimental design, here's the math, here's the everything so that you know, a lot of engineers and I, and I certainly was guilty of this perhaps like early in my career are like, oh, that's all human touchy feely garbage. None of that matters. And it's like, yeah, except here's the math that proves that it matters. And like, it's kind of hard to argue with the math. Uh, and so um, they call it like the science behind or, or whatever. Um but that's what the Accelerate book is. And, and most people know it from like the four key metrics that we were talking about. The, the first time I heard um, Cody, he was the CIO at uh, T-Mobile. I think he's retired now, but um, he 
had told me, he goes, I was asking like what secret is or you know, <laughs> things like that. He was in an early interview. I think he's like in the first 50 interviews. Right. But uh, he said, Joel, it's all about the people. And then from then on, I, I had heard that from like, so many, cause you know, there's a, there's a gradient, there's like different people of different levels of success, you know, personally and professionally that I get to talk to. And, yeah. and I always try to figure out like, all right, the top 20% of everyone I get to talk to, where, where, what are the trends there and how can I be spending, you know, more time there? And I just, uh, kept hearing it over and over and over. And then as my business grew as an entrepreneur, I started focusing on that because, uh, I heard, you know, the whole gardener concept, like you mentioned it earlier, like you, you can't make the plant grow, but you can create an environment where the plant can grow right. and then you can help like shape the, shape the plant and whatnot. And so when I started to take that perspective, uh, you know, everything changed for me and, and things started working a lot better. And I believe that perspective can be applied, um, as an individual contributor, all the way up to manager, all the way up through owner, like you can always find ways to apply that. Yes, I, I agree a hundred percent. I also think that's why, you know, we have this horrible um, thing that we do in our industry, which we take a really great engineer and we're like, congratulations, here's your promotion. You're now an engineering manager. And they're like, what? Like, oh, I guess this is the way that you move up in engineering. And it's like, first of all, that, that whole pattern is broken. <laughs> like. You know, and, and the good organizations will have a track for people to move up technically and then a track for people to move up in management. And those aren't the same tracks, uh, you know, and you can go up all the way to distinguished engineer and CTO and all those other things in a technical track. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that's why people struggle is that they their whole career, they've been like, I'm an engineer, I'm writing all this code. And now I'm basically in a people job. Because an engineering manager isn't a writing code job. And now I'm in a people job and you're like, hey, just get the best you can out of this engineering team. And like, you know, your boss is like, is basically like, well, that, that just means you're going to yell at people about how they should write code. And it's like, that's not, that's not what being an engineering manager is at all. <laughs> and so it's a completely different job. And we throw people into these jobs without the training that they need and the understanding that they that they need in order to get it done and it's funny for me because in the work that i do consulting like not in the assessment those low level managers are the ones that i wind up working with the most not just be not that they're bad at their jobs or anything but like they're the closest to the information because that's where all the engineering is where the information is and then they also have to sort of mediate between what management wants and what the engineers are doing so that's a very, very high leverage place to make change. Um, but a lot of those people are just like, I'm like, so how'd you get into this role? Well, I was the best engineer on my team. So they made me a manager. I'm like, <laughs> so, so you don't get to do the best engineering anymore. And they're like, no. I'm like, okay. Well, I'm I think sorry. what you were talking about, like with that, you know, it's very prevalent, right? This, this concept it's, and it's talked about a lot, but um, to tie it back to our earlier conversation, like if if your goal as a leader, um, leader of people, is you know to put them first and make sure that th what they're after in life, um, them going after that, and what you need done in life, that those things connect, right? And by promoting someone without knowing that it's what they want, I think that's like where the mistake was, and. 
you know, I, I learned this and I think it's worth saying that it's not just engineering. So I was doing this across mm. the board. I thought everybody wanted to run a team and wanted a big company. Some people <laughs> were absolutely frightened and like wanting to quit the mo And I'm sitting there thinking I'm pumping them up. Like we're going to get big. You're going to become the leader. You're going to have teams of teams. And they're sitting there like, how do I get out of this job? And I'm, <laughs> I, and I'm sitting there. <laughs> yeah. And so what I learned was, you know, when uh, I start talking to people, I just say that. I just tell that story and I say, you you know, you need to tell me what you want. And I go, and you also need to remember that it will change. It's dynamic. Like when I'm having, like we're having our third kid right now. My, my wife is, is pregnant yeah. again. Yeah. And things definitely change the first couple of months. I have a new kid. Like my focus definitely is, is different than it is, you know, after they're out of that very, very early stage. Right. And so, you know, I might not want a promotion at that point in time. Um, so knowing your people, uh, and being a great leader, I think that, uh, that's super important. I think that would solve a lot of the people's question of, should I promote this lead engineer or should I convince them of the talk track? So you shouldn't do anything other than talk to them. Like you should talk to them and try to figure out, you know, where they're at in their journey and how you can help them based on what, I mean, your biggest thing helping them might be letting them stay exactly where they're at. They might be going through some stuff right now yeah. and they might need to just have the comfort of a stable work environment. You know, you don't know that if yeah. you don't have a relationship with them. Yeah. That's the, have you tried talking to them as a service? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I gave advice to someone this morning. They're like, so I saw this engineer and I thought he was really struggling. So I, I gave him another resource and now he's super angry. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And I was like, did you try asking him about it? And they're like, well, no, I saw him struggling. So I knew what the, what the answer to his problem was. And I was like, yeah, I think you probably had a much better answer to his problem if you just asked him what's going on, you know? And it's honestly a lot easier on you as the leader too, because then you don't have this big burden of trying to like solve everything for everyone else, <laughs> right? Right. You don't have to read everyone's mind. You could just ask them what's on their mind. Yeah. That person was stressed. That engineer was probably stressed out, had a bunch of work or had something going on in their personal life. And then when giving them that resource, thinking it was the solution, just gave them somebody to train, which gave them more work. And now they're like <laughs> even extra stressed. <laughs> yeah. No good deed goes unpunished. Um, oh, but yeah, no, I, I, I think it's huge. And I think that's why I love like the accelerate report and those, all the, all those other things is it's about creating that culture and it's not about the actual numbers or, or whatever. And, and I think that's, you know, as someone who's made that transition from engineer to engineering leader and, and all those other fun, exciting transitions that you have the scars to prove that you did them. You know, I, I those those are definitely some of the things that I learned on my journey, uh, and I'm definitely out on a mission to help other people to understand those things so that they don't get quite as many scars on the journey. Even though some of them are, you know, that's just the nature of the business. But you know, I, I want to help people have better lives. I want them to be able to produce more stuff. I want them to be happier at work. Because ultimately that's where all this growth comes from in these companies is like having really happy employees that are stoked to use the California word, you know, term to come <laughs> to work every day. So if people want to get good at delivering software, they like you, they've been hearing you, they're like, I want to talk to this guy. You do this, right? It's not just for PE firms exclusively, like they can reach out to you. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's not just for PE firms. I just, PE firms tend to have a lot of the most interesting problems to me because they're really hard, but it's, I, you know, I work with tons of non-portfolio companies uh, as well. I love working with them too. It's, uh, you know, again, like I just want people to come up, come to work every day, really happy because everybody like there's so few opportunities we have in life for win-win like this is win-win the engineers are happy the business is happy like like let's let's take advantage of that as much as possible yeah you're getting getting good at, at delivering software that's like your current your current banner that you're waving right yeah it is definitely my current banner that i'm waving how can people reach out to you linkedin website yeah, they can go to Mango Tech. Uh, it's uh, M A N G O T E E Q U E. So like uh, the, uh, a play on the French idea of my last name, uh, and then Tech. Uh, or they can certainly find me on on uh, on LinkedIn. And then if they go there, they can also sign up. Uh, I do a monthly um, sort of email about DevOps and private equity. Uh, so for people who want to hear about those kinds of problems, it's not. It's not just about private equity. It's about the kinds of problems that I see in these private equity kinds of companies. So uh, it's also another great way to keep in touch and or get in touch and you know certainly can reach out. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.